Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 162, Competitive Advantage, Four Ways to Leverage Relationships at Work, featuring Todd Davis. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. How many times have you heard a company say, our people are our greatest assets? I mean, you've probably even uttered that a few times yourself. It's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't really tell the full story. Simply having an organization full of top talent is ultimately less important than how they function together. Today, I'm excited to welcome to Engaging Leader uh, the Chief People Officer, Todd Davis, from one of the companies that I've most admired for a very long time, Franklin Covey. And we're going to talk about his brand new book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. Even though it may be true that your organization's greatest assets are your people, Todd's book shows that your ultimate competitive advantage comes from the relationships between those people. His book identifies 15 proven practices that influential leaders use to improve the quality of relationships, the quality of their interactions with, other, with others and uh, among the teams that they lead. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a few of those best practices to pique your interest, whet your appetite, so that you can grab the book and learn about all 15 of them. Todd Davis has been with Franklin Covey for over 20 years, and he currently serves as the chief people officer, which for those of you who may not know, that's sort of like saying they're the, uh, the senior vice president of human resources would be a, a very, uh, would be a similar title. But he is an executive vice president at Franklin Covey, and he's responsible for their global talent development. Todd Davis, welcome to Engaging Leader. Well, hello, and uh, thanks for having me. Todd, before we jump into the specific content of this book, uh, tell us the story about the book you first started to write about leading with humility. <laughs> well, you've uh, you've read an early version of, of uh, this book because I talk about it in the Get Better book. Yeah, I I for several years I've you know I've coached leaders and others for many years and and noticing many commonalities among great leaders, but but the one thing that I noticed at the foundation of all the great leaders that I've had and and great leaders that I've coached is this this strength of humility or this this uh, competency around humility. And the more I, I saw it at practice uh, and at work, I thought, you know, I want to write this book about humility. I want to write this book about, you know, what great leaders do. And there are plenty of those books out there. But, but I, ha- excuse me, I hadn't seen one on that really, that really honed in on this aspect of humility. And so I got more and more excited about it. I was gathering lots of information. And, uh, and one day it came to me, I thought, I know the title. I know the title of this book. In fact, I had just finished a conversation with a great leader who really models humility. And I went back to my desk and I thought, the book is going to be called Lead with Humility. I went to Google it to make sure the name wasn't taken and that I could reserve the, the rights on that. And was discouraged to learn that the name was taken. And in fact, there was already a book called Lead with Humility. And not only that, but it had, it had been written by Pope Francis himself. <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> I thought to myself, 
okay, now I've got a decision to make. Do I want to go toe-to-toe with the Pope <laughs> on the topic of humility, no less? And uh, by the way, I, I bought and read the book. It's an awesome book. Is it? I highly recommend his book. Yes, I'll leave with humility. But that, that kind of kiboshed uh, that idea. And, and later actually learned that this book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work, is really the book I wanted to write, although I do have a chapter. It's the last chapter of the book, Practice 15, which is called Start with Humility. So thanks for asking. I'm, uh, it's a topic I'm very passionate about. When I first picked up your book and looked at the table of contents, it was the chapter of humility that caught my attention. And I actually mentioned it to our programming director, Tom Hitchcock, that maybe we should consider focusing the, the whole interview on leadership humility. It's such an important topic, and it's interesting why did you ultimately decide to make it the very last chapter in the book? And it's called Start with Humility, but then you position it at the end of the book. Yeah. I, I um, you know, so many great business books out there and, and, and other books. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, one that reads these books and I get into them the first few chapters. And then, and then I have found in, in many books, um, the real nuggets are right up front, the first half of the book. And, and again, far be it for me to be a book critic, but I, but I, I read through the books and I, and I wanted this book to be as meaningful, certainly in every chapter as the first few. And I really wanted this punch at the end to say, look, you can, you can focus on all of these practices, but if you don't start with humility, so one would think, well, gosh, have that up front then. But, but I think, no, I think it's more impactful when it's something you reflect on after you've gone through each of these practices and say, this will all be for naught if you don't have a pretty good dose and a consistent dose of humility throughout. So it's, it's something I try to remind myself of every day as I get up, you know, and, and check my ego and decide wh- where is my humility. Humility is in no ways uh, a weakness. You know, we don't talk, at least in my experience, we don't talk a lot about humility in the workplace. Um, and, and I think sometimes people do view it as a weakness or you're not really a mover or shaker if, if humility is your number one strength. And, and I have found that to be just the opposite. Those that are, are the real influencers that really make the difference on the things that matter are those that have humility as, as a foundation to everything they do. So, so that's my that's my philosophy on humility, and, and I put it at the end of the book so it would be kind of this final reminder that uh, you got to have that or nothing else matters. So if you start with humility, how, how do you define humility? Well, it's a great question. I, I think it, you know, it certainly means different things to different people, but, but in my opinion, I don't have one set uh, sentence or phrase for it. I, I just, when I talk about it with people, when I coach leaders and others about it, I, I just remind themselves that humility is the thing that allows me to say I'm sorry, that, that I made a mistake. Humility is the thing that tells me no matter how successful I am, I didn't do it on my own. Humility helps me feel excited and happy about somebody else's success. Humility helps me to forgive you know, when the person that I've wronged um, hasn't apologized or even asked for forgiveness, and it was really up to her or him to do that. So, it, so in the end, humility, I would say, reminds me that I am one part of a much bigger whole. I'm one part of that. That's, that's for me, how I define humility and, and remind myself that while I want to do significant work, 
and make meaningful contributions. And that's certainly what I want to be all about, that I am one piece in this much bigger cog. It seems like there's a, a, a lot of misconceptions about what humility is. And you talked a little bit about that in the book. Um, is, what, what are some of the things you would say humility is not that might surprise people? Well, humility is not um, just saying yes to everything. Humili- humility is not agreeing to every idea that comes along. Humility is not um, kowtowing or, or being the, the martyr or, you know, just kind of being in this apologetic state all of the time. That's not what humility is. Again, humility is, is um, respect for others. And, and again, respect doesn't mean, okay, well, I never disagree with them. Respect means if I do see things differently, that I, that I share my observations, but in a respectful way. Um, so it's, it's misconstrued, I think, as a weakness and a um, kind of a subservient type, type attitude. And that's certainly not what humility is. I was fascinated by the couple of research studies you discussed in the book about how people in a humble state of mind are better at self-control and other types of personal strength. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, they, 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 there, there have been several studies done on this, but uh, one in particular where they had people in, in these control groups, and, and the people didn't know what it was they were actually being tested for, but they had people who would talk about an experience um, of, uh, that would put them in a, in a humble state of mind, uh, they would they would share an experience like that, and then they would go into a waiting room, and in this waiting room there was various uh, um, not so healthy treats and candy and things like that on on tables, and 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 again they weren't sure of what the control experience was, and the control experience was actually while they were waiting in that room because then they would do another group and they would get this another group in a frame of mind of boasting about their accomplishments or or you know great pride in what they had done in, in, in kind of an egotistical fashion. And then they would put them in a, in a waiting room with the same unhealthy snacks. Now, it sounds kind of silly, but really the outcome time and time again showed that people who were in a humble state of mind were much more disciplined and didn't, you know, jump in on, on partaking of all of the not-so-healthy treats in there, where people that were in this egotistical state of mind were far less disciplined. There have been many other studies, but around that same type of thing, around discipline. That's amazing. I mean, you, even though I have had several people point out to me over my whole career that uh, what a difference humility makes, especially in a leader, but in, in every work position, it's still, it's hard not to think of, of it as just someone who's meek and uh Maybe not. Maybe even looking down on themselves or lower self-esteem, and yet the the way that those researchers found that it it actually improves your ability to hang on to self-esteem in times of failure, your ability to develop stronger social bonds. So humility is far from weakness. Absolutely, for any person who are familiar with, and, and I assume thousands of them are, because it remains a best-selling book today, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The late Dr. Stephen. Habit victory and the public. And the first three habits of the seven habits, you go out and begin with your mind, are all about what we call a private victory. These are things that, that help me to be, help us to be grounded in who we are. And when we're grounded in who we are, we don't have to be right on it. We're not continually seeking for public approval. 
we're not, you know, so worried about, I mean, we're respectful of others, but the conversation, we don't contribute to the conversation so we can appear to be smart. We contribute to the conversation so that we can actually add value. So when we're, when you're grounded and have a strong, again, what he calls a private victory, which is all about humility, then we're freed up. We're freed up to make so much more meaningful contributions. And that's why humility is such a strength and, and the opposite. Todd, do you have a, a, t- a tip or two to share for someone who's listening to this and says, okay, uh, yeah, I would like to develop more humility. Is that even a goal someone can set for themselves or how would they, what's the, f- the first step that they should take? Well, uh, what has worked for me, both for myself and for people I've coached, is to list out what I believe my strengths are. You know, if, if I were to survey 10 people that know me well, or you were to survey 10 people that know me well, and say, you know, here's Todd's brand. Here's what you get when Todd joins a team or organization. List out those strengths. And then try to make an equally as long list for those things that are not your strengths or your natural strengths. And be really honest with yourself. And, and force yourself to identify those things which you probably don't want others to know about, or you don't run around at least sharing, you know, I'm, I'm awful at this, or I'm horrible at this, but, but list those things, and then be very realistic about that. That's, that's a great starting place, because I think people who struggle with humility, and, and we all do it one time or another, they, they get, you know, too caught up in themselves, and they've just had a big success here, or a triumphant meeting there, and, and, and while that um, validation can be good, if it's balanced, we, we, it, it, it does us all well to remember that we're all in a state of continuous state of getting better. And for me to not, not to be negative about myself, for me to list out those things that I am not as good at or maybe as good at yet, or that aren't my natural strengths. And then, and then choosing a few of those that maybe I want to focus on more. Just that activity itself is a great reminder to say, yeah, I've got my strengths, but I've also got, big gaps that um, I'm wise to surround myself with others or with others who have strengths in those areas so that collectively together we can, we can be a, a, an unstoppable team. That's, that's one uh, coaching technique and activity that I've used with myself and, and with others. Yeah, that seems very helpful. And, and not only for the, as an exercise to, to pr- get yourself in a humble state of mind or to practice humility, but to be more clear about your strengths and those around you and, and of course building on all of the, the the research around playing to your strengths uh, it puts people in a in a much more um, effective situation position yeah. right what, what, one other one other thing that just came to mind that I've used uh, quite a bit and it's, it's not my idea it's, uh, I think it's Oprah's idea but she uh, coaches people to create and, and carry and, and work on a gratitude journal and I I have done this myself, and just just writing out at the end of the day or the end of a week or, or some period of time those things for which I am grateful. It's a very humbling in a in a in a in a real healthy way. It's a very humbling experience to remind us that gosh, of all the great things I have in my life, um, they're all from lots of other people and things. It's not that you know I've created this great life for myself, but yeah. I've been in situations where everyone around me, people I affiliate with, have been used to be a part of, 
have done that for me. That's a, that's another great way. If, if you if you think you're struggling with humility or, or, or want to work on it better, that's a great thing to do. Now, the real challenge is those people who struggle with humility um, are rarely aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's the real challenge. That makes sense. I uh, I have to say t- the gratitude journal is a great is a great technique, and I. I I do that myself. Um, even if you just take five minutes, even just once a week, I try to do it at a minimum of once a week and just list three things that I'm, that I'm grateful for. And, uh, and writing it down is certainly helpful, but also just like at, at bedtime, it, it often helps me fall asleep faster when I just reflect on what I'm grateful for that sort of pop yeah. that came up that day. What a great, what a great habit. I want to look at, uh, some of the other of the 15 practices that are in the book, but before we do, I, I just want to understand um, the motivation when when you decided you, we we told that you told that story about how you were going to write a book on humility, and then you discovered um, that's okay. Pope Francis already did it because you actually came to the realization that this was the book you truly wanted to write. Can you tell us why this idea of uh, relationships is so so important for you personally to teach? Well. You know, a, a phrase that I think many people uh, reflect on or talk about or say out loud, especially earlier in their career when they're looking for a job, and I hear it all the time because I'm responsible for many things in our company, but particularly the recruiting and finding talent, is I'll hear people say, I'm a people person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and I, and I kind of smile, and, and that, that's a great thing. I wonder if they, if they really think about what does that mean? And I ask them, what does that mean to you to be a people person? Well, I like working with people. I, I like being around people. And, and that's good. That's good clarification. I'm not being critical of that. I have, um, from a very young age, uh, and, I, and it was just a, it was, I'm not, I'm not to tooting my horn or anything. I just, I just, I was aware of the fact that relationships for me were foundational to everything else. And, and again, I have so many flaws in so many areas. To include in, so again, I, I don't want to sound like um, I was just born with this integrity around the land. <laughs> Uh, but but it, for, from from my my earliest memories, relationships have been just a top priority for me. Maybe I was so insecure as a child that I just wanted to make sure I had a lot of friends. And, and so so from the beginning until I got into my professional career, it was always kind of intuitive in me or natural in me um, to focus on relationships. But as I looked back a couple of years ago and thought, wow, you've been so lucky to be in what I call what we call now the chief people officer. You're always put in a role or gravitate towards a role that involves coaching others around relationships or mediation or, you know, helping people work through challenges that they have with other people. And, and I realized that that is at the foundation of solving everything. And it's not just my hunch. We've all seen everything. You know, we're all, we're all measured by a lot of different results depending on what our role is. At the end of the day, we're all measured by the results we get, we all get in, in our world. And unless you are a pro golfer, <laughs> or maybe you're running a company where you are the only employee, the rest of us get our results with and through other people. And, and so other people being, you know, it's really hard to change yourself, how much harder it is to change another person. So relationships and the ability to influence, positively influence others is foundational everything else we're trying to accomplish. Well, that's the, that's the motivation or the inspiration, the passion I have around focusing on 
how do we improve our relationships? Because if we can do that and continually get better at our relationships, we can accomplish all of the other wildly important goals that we set out to accomplish. And at Franklin Covey, which which is a, a very famous and well-known and uh, and much loved company all over the world. When when you guys, if you guys ever say our people are our greatest asset, uh, it, it's it's absolutely true because it 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 all everything happens through your people, and and through your um, your intellectual capital, the 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 principles that you're teaching, and. So, if the relationships between the people aren't aren't working, um, it, it definitely is going to cause significant problems. Absolutely, you know the, the phrase is is well used and and and, and believed. I believe in, in, in all organizations that people truly are our greatest asset. But it's actually, as I've seen time and time again, it's the nature of the relationships between those people that really are. Your competitive advantage. It's, you can have you can have a lot of talented people, but if they if they aren't, you know, tied at the hip in, in the form of great relationships, then then they really aren't a, a great, as great a competitive advantage as, as they can be. So we focus on the nature of the relationships between these great assets of people. That's when we really um, have a step up or a leg up. Todd, let's look at another of the 15 practices. Tell us about examine your real motives. Yes, examine your real motives, practice number nine. Uh, this has to do with understanding what our underlying intent is. And often I have found that we don't even know ourselves what our real motive is until we pause and think, now, wait a minute, am I, like I said earlier, am I, am I in a meeting and am I talking because I really have something to contribute or am I talking because everybody else is talking and I'm worried that my boss isn't going to think I'm very smart unless I say something. <laughs> so that's an example of, you know, what is my real motive there? And only you, only you know what your real intent is. Nobody else can determine that for you. You know, the wrong intent can become self-serving and, and it creates behavior that leads to poor outcome. We, we get frustrated because... People judge us by our actions, not by our good intentions. So unexamined motives can really conflict, uh, conflict with our values. And um, I have found that you can kind of start to lose sight of who you really want to be. So I, I work with people, and again, don't talk like I've mastered all this too. I work with myself too, to, to really pause and say, what is, my, what is your real motive here, Todd? What is your real intent? And... Uh, it's important to understand that for yourself, and then it's also important to share that with others when you're having a conversation with them, so that they're not um, second guessing what your your intent might be. There was a there was a practice that was introduced in the 1980s uh, in the Toyota you know car system called the Five Whys. You familiar with that? Yes. And it's how they would get to a root cause problem in their assembly lines and all this. And they would ask that the the theory was you ask yourself why five times to get down to the real underlying issue. Now. There's no magic around the number five. You might, it might be three times. It might be seven times. But the point is, if you continually ask yourself why, 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 you get down to what the real cause is. For example, um, a, a situation I talk about in the book and that happened here at Franklin Covey several years ago, we were going through a restructuring. And there, was, there were several departments that were going to be impacted by this restructuring as we realigned the business. One department in particular was going to have a few empl- of their employees misplaced. 
and whether we found them other roles in Franklin County or, or outside of Franklin County. And we were meeting with the managers that were responsible for this. And, and for the reasons we decided to do this, everybody was in agreement. And we had, as I recall, about eight weeks to make sure this restructuring happened. And so a particular manager, who I'll call Steve, said, okay, so I said, so Steve, you're gonna talk to your people, let them know what's going on. He said, yep, we're all on board. About two weeks later, I was checking in with the managers and I gave Steve a call. But how's it going? He said, you know, Todd, I'd like to revisit this. And I said, well, are, are your people upset? Well, I haven't talked to them yet. He said, what? He said, Steve, we're now, now we've only got six weeks. And, and so you're shortening the runway for these people to start networking and looking for other opportunities. What's the problem? Well, I just wonder if we should revisit this. And I said to him, are you, are you thinking this is not the right decision? Well, I'm not sure. Anyway, long story short, Steve and I met and we went through this exercise, I mean, I didn't call it an exercise at the time, but the five whys, and asking Steve to say, now, why are you uncomfortable with this? Well, it's a big change, okay, and, and tell me why you're uncomfortable with change. Well, it's going to disrupt some lives, and okay, and, and what's the concern about disrupting lives? Now, <laughs> that sounds like a duh, but the point is, in asking why several times, we finally got to the point where Steve said, no, it is the right decision, but I have always been uncomfortable with difficult conversations with people. So he, he's got great leadership qualities, but at the heart of this was he just didn't know how to handle these conversations. Well, that was a surprise to me, you know, when we first had the conversation and, and it took me simply saying, Steve, would you, would you like me to join you in these calls? And I could just feel this wave of relief come over him. We got to the cause, but it, that's where you're understanding what your real motives are. And his motive wasn't, well, he thought it was that he disagreed with the decision. It was just that he didn't quite know how to handle a, an uncomfortable or difficult conversation. So that was a long answer to your question, but that's what we mean. No, a very good answer. And I appreciate you sharing that story to explain the five whys. And as you said in the in that chapter, examine your real motives, it's, it's, it's a great technique to use. The five whys is great for... Um, when you're working with someone else and asking them five whys, but it's also good for self-reflection to just examine your own motives. Um, and I, just to, as an example, I recently did it for myself as I was trying to understand why did I had, I lately had this practice of overcommitting, just getting myself way too booked up, uh, for weeks at a time. And mm-hmm. then, uh, obviously not being able to, to, operate optimally and not having as much fun on a day-to-day basis because I had no margin in, in my days. And so, you know, why is this happening? Well, because there's, there's just so much work to be done. I can't, I can't help it. Mm-hmm. Why is, you know, why is there so much work to be done? And keep asking myself why and dig down into to finding some interesting root causes that I could actually work on, such as somehow I had f- fallen out of the habit of delegating and I was feeling like I had to do everything myself. And also, you could certainly pick up maybe some insecurities like, well, you know, I've got to, what have, what have you done for me lately? I've got to prove myself, I guess. And mm-hmm. so you can, and just by understanding that you either there's things that you can work on, but often just awareness, it creates change. Like, well, okay, I, I don't, I don't have anything to be insecure about. So I, I just need to take a breath the next time someone asks me to do something and I, and really consider, is this in line with my priorities and my availability? That, that is such a great example. In fact, you reminded me several years ago of, of someone I was working with that at, at the end of the day, because she was committing, over committing. And when, when we got down to it, 
she, very talented person, but she was believing that that was her that was her contribution, and that if she said no to something, she was going to be seen as less valuable. So she had an insecurity around what value she really added. And when she finally realized that, thought, "Oh, I don't have to say yes to everything to be seen as valuable." Um, but it was this underlying motive that she didn't didn't realize herself. And we we all have those. We all have those types of surprises if we take time to really explore and, and, and understand why do we do what we do. Todd, we have time to talk about one more of the practices. Tell us about the pinball syndrome. Well, first I want to understand what your real motive is in saying we only have time for one more. Are you tired of me? Have I bored you? Or <laughs> do we really only have time for one more? <laughs> and I would like to ask why you're concerned about that. <laughs> okay. Well, because I'm insecure. Uh, okay, practice six, avoid the pinball syndrome. It's, it's one of my favorite, they're all my favorite practices, but it's one of my favorite to talk about. And honestly, it's because it's one that challenges me the most, um, that I find the most challenging. So we all know what, or most of us know what pinball games are. I'm sure there are numerous apps on our, on our smartphones for pinball games. But back in the Haiti, there were these big, you know, machines, pinball games. You can still find them in, in certain malls around the world, where you, you pull back this trigger and then this metal ball shoots forward and you're controlling these two or sometimes four flippers on either side of the, of the game. And, and the goal is to keep this ball going and it hits different bumpers and buzzers and whistles and, and noises go off and you rack up points. But in the end, the game wins. The, the gravity wins out and the, and the ball eventually goes down through the hole and then you're just in time to pull back the plunger and, and go for another round. And that's fun. And it's exciting and it's enticing because it's a game and it's got all of this stimulus that's going on. Well, avoiding the pinball syndrome is what what I've seen and get caught up in at work is the activity that goes on at work versus what are the real results. In other words, do you ever get to the end of a day or a week and you feel like, gosh, I'm exhausted and I've never worked harder in my life. And what of real value has been accomplished? What, what happens is we confuse, and I think we're all guilty of it, we confuse activity with results mm. because it's exciting. You know, we're busy, we're talking to people, we're running around doing this and that, and there's this, there's this endor- endorphin rush where we can check things off the list and, and, okay, I got this thing done or I met with this person. And, and some of those things are important, but, but sometimes and often we confuse this rush of being busy, just like the pinball machine, because it's exciting, it's rewarding. We confuse that with accomplishing things that are really meaningful or important. So the whole goal in avoid the pinball syndrome is defining before the quote unquote game begins, meaning before your week begins, where your day begins, what are the most important things that I want to focus on today? And regardless of the urgencies that come up, I am going to block out time. I'm going to dedicate time to focus on and make sure these important, maybe not as exciting, but important things get accomplished. So, so that's the, the principle behind avoiding the pinball syndrome. Now, there are many things that are urgent and important. So not, not trying to say, oh, it's so easy to do, just separate this all out. But I think if, if you will carefully, as I have done, carefully examine your week and what's taking place you will see things that you have that I have confused as being important that are that are much less important and just much more urgent. So we react to them. That's based on the classic Franklin Covey principle of 
putting first things first, which uh, I, 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 just for our listeners' sake, it, it comes out of the Seven Habits book, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. And definitely one of the principles in that book that changed changed my life and my career to have an awareness, a greater awareness of what's actually important versus what just feels urgent and making sure you're spending more time on the, the, the appropriate time and the things that truly are important. I'm interested that you're, um, you are talking about this within the context of relationships at work. Um, what, how does that affect if you do this right or wrong, how does it affect your relationships? Perfect. Thank you for asking that. It's 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 exactly why I put it in this book is because I've seen not just leaders but others get so caught up in their activities and things that important things, i.e., relationships and people on their team, whether they're leading the team or their colleagues, those people, unintentionally fall by the wayside. So I, I had a, a really talented individual come to me, and and I unbeknownst to me, he, he well this individual was working for a great leader, but they said to me, I think I want to request to be on another team. And I was shocked. I said, why, what are you talking about? So-and-so, your leader is so accomplished and doing such great things. And this person said, right. And she has no time to meet with me. She's canceled these appointments. And, and, and this person, this leader is a really great person. And it wasn't an int- intentional, but until we met and talked, and she could kind of take stock of where things were at. She didn't realize that, you know what, I have I have gotten caught up in this pinball suit. Got so much on my plate that I have kind of forgotten that I get results with and through others. And I'm I'm assuming my team is all around me and on board and feeling good and feeling engaged and feeling valued, and they weren't. And so so that's why it it is one of the key practices here. It's because I've seen time and time again, including with myself that getting unintentionally caught up in the pinball syndrome, relationships are damaged or, or start to be damaged or fall by the wayside. Yeah, I love the metaphor of the pinball. It's a, it's a great way to look at this from a couple of different perspectives that I, that I hadn't before. So first of all, if, you are, if you're playing pinball with your time, you're, the people around you, especially those reporting to you, they're the ball that you're batting all over the place and they... Um, are not in a very engaging, fun state of work when they, they can't um, stay focused on priorities because you're constantly shifting their priorities. Well, that is one way to look at it. They could be the ball, or they're the person standing by the sides of the game watching you play it, mm-hmm. and that's fun for a few minutes, or that's interesting for a few minutes, but in the end, you're not involved, you're not included, you're not part of this thing. And, and I don't know if you ever stood and watched somebody play pinball. It is interesting for a few minutes, but but it, it you kind of lose interest after a while. And again, you don't feel valued. And that's what that's what happens in relationships, where I'm so fo- I'm so focused on the ball and the flippers and the noises that I while I care about these people around me, I'm not really focused on them. And and then I lose interest and they lose interest, and it damages the relationship. Todd, we're as we're we're getting close to wrapping up here. If you were to ask. Uh, our listeners to remember one thing for, about the book or about your your teachings, what would that be? Well, it would be uh, tie it back to why I'm so passionate about this topic, why I've been so passionate about this book. Relationships matter. Uh, several weeks ago, I was I was driving down the street, and there's a bumper sticker. Perhaps many of you have seen it. It was on the back of a boat that was being towed by a motorhome, and it, maybe there were some four wheelers hooked up there somewhere too. And the bumper sticker said, 
he, and I'll be correct here and say or she, but he or she who dies with the most toys wins. You know, and they were kind of self-deprecating humor about all the toys they were dragging around. And I thought about that, and I thought to myself, you know, I'd love to have all those toys that, that they have. You know, I, I'm not putting that down at all. But my, my firm belief is that he or she who dies with the most meaningful relationships wins. So mm. if, if I were to leave one parting thought, it would be that. It would be that at the end of the day, relationships matter. And, and while we got to focus on a lot of other things, and we, and we literally do need to focus on a lot of other things, have relationships at the core. Because if, if you don't have that, nothing else matters. And I love how you, you didn't say he or she, he or she who dies with the most relationships win. You said with the most meaningful relationships. Uh, so even if you just had one <laughs> or two, but they're very meaningful, that, that is a, a life of meaning. That, that's right. One of the practices we weren't able to get to is practice four, play your roles well. And in that practice, we talk about, it's not about who has the most friends, you know, I have the most acquaintances on Facebook or whatever, but it's about what are the five to seven most important roles in my life and what am I doing to make a significant contribution, a meaningful contribution in those roles. So to your point, it's not about having the most relationships, but it's about having the most meaningful relationships. Yeah, that's good. Well, Todd, where can people get their hands on your book and find out more about you and your work? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the, the book is officially in bookstores on November 7th, but it's on pre-order right now. And in fact, people who do the pre-order, they get this set of cards. There's a deck of cards that doesn't come with the book after November 7th, but, but we uh, send those to you now. So if listeners will go to www.getbetterbook.com, again, that's www.getbetterbook.com and order the book online, they can uh, then receive a free uh, set of these cards that we will ship to them. So that's something we're doing for anybody who does a pre-order of the book. And that's the, the link where they can where they can go to pre-order the book on on, on the site. So these are, are like flashcards to help you stay fresh with what the 15 practices are? That's right. There's a card per practice, 15 cards, and... Uh, Honestly, they're they're becoming as popular as the book. I'm, I've, I've had my feelings hurt a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes good sense. I've read a lot of books with great concepts, great principles, but a month later, it's hard to remember more than just maybe one key message from the book. So having that as a tool would be really useful. Yeah, it's a quick reminder. Now, are you um, active on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or any other social media? I am. And let me give you those. Uh, let me give you those sites because uh, that would be helpful for you to know. <laughs> so, uh, the uh, my my uh, LinkedIn is www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Todd Davis. My Twitter account is at Todd Davis FC for Franklin Covey, and Facebook is Todd Davis FC. So those are the the links where people can hang out with me. Great, and. Uh, obviously, franklincovey.com. Is there any uh, particular spots on that website that you would direct folks' attention to? Yes, if your listeners will go to www.franklincovey.com, that's our, our home site landing page, and, and the book is listed there, as well as many of our other world-class solutions that will uh, and do certainly help uh, teams and organizations throughout the world. Fantastic. And the book, again, is Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. 
And we will put on our show notes for this episode all of the links and books that that Todd mentioned. Uh, Todd Davis, Chief People Officer from Franklin Covey, thanks so much for being on our show at Engaging Leader. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. All right, Engagers, just to recap today's conversation, we talked about four of the 15 practices in the book. We talked about start with humility, examine your motives, avoid the pinball, the pinball syndrome. That's easy for me to say. And we talked briefly, at the, Todd talked briefly at the very end about play your roles well. And as I said, we'll provide the information and links that Todd mentioned on our show notes, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 162 as in episode 162. This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.